Chapter 1 The Angel of Wrath They approached the earth from the sunlit side. The archangel, Michael, listened to Noah's concerns and counseled him as they moved through the vacuum. Noah asked the angel, Has God's love for humanity been eclipsed by contempt? God's love can't be eclipsed, Noah. Humanity, on the other hand, has allowed themselves to become morbidly wicked and they curse God for the choices they make. The contempt is theirs. How could we reduce ourselves to this? Noah shamefully asked. You're not really in that equation, Noah. You really don't have anything to do with why the Lord is angry and why his wrath comes with me. But you have much to do with why humanity won't be wiped away completely. If only I could give something worthy enough to God, something to calm his fury so he'll not wipe the others away. I'm prepared to give my life if need be. Your blood can't save them, Noah, but your compassion and obedience is an example of why you'll be saved. Therein lies God's call for you, and your call is to be God's restoring agent of humanity on new earth. The archangel brought Noah through the upper atmosphere as they continued speeding towards the earth. Noah's humble nature almost keeps him from grasping what's being bestowed upon him. Noah wrestled down questions such as, why me? What makes me so special? Should I be allowed to live while the rest of humanity dies? Noah fought off these thoughts while trying not to give way to thoughts like, better them being wiped away than me. Noah wanted to be secure in knowing that he was right with God. He couldn't let self-righteousness, self-pity, self-doubt, self-aggrandizement, or basically himself get in the way. He had been blameless in the eyes of God and was called to be the custodian of humanity. He refrained from expressing doubts that he could do what God said he'd do through him, the way Moses would when his calling came, or Gideon. I need only know the way, said Noah. The archangel didn't want to make Noah's job any harder, but he had to give a discouraging response. You can't know the way, Noah. As the angel broke the news, they broke through the clouds speeding high above the ocean. Noah didn't want to disrespect the archangel by pointing out the obvious, but asked, My Lord, how can I restore humanity on new earth without knowing the way? How can you find new earth if you're dead? Responded Michael. His voice maintained its soothing chorus despite speeding through the air. The warlocks have to believe you know the location of New Earth, Noah. This will keep them from killing you. They could break you for this information, but they can't break you for what you don't know. Will not my God give me the strength to hold my tongue? Or couldn't I just give them false information? Noah asked. Then they'll expect you to lead them to that lie, said Michael. Your mission isn't to lie and be their hostage leading them on a false pursuit. There's a lot of things that God could do to make this less complicated. But God didn't cause humanity's problems. And now the curse that Adam and Eve invited into the world has fallen on you to handle at this point. However, because you've walked so closely with God, he has shown you favor, but you will have to endure this experience. The Lord has given the task of guarding you to the Nephilim. 
your journey will take you across oceans of darkness. But no matter the depth and no matter the turbulence, let God's light shine through you. He'll reveal what you need to know when you need to know it. The Archangel accelerates his descent towards the ocean with his flaming sword drawn. His mane of long straight feathers whip over him like white fire over a body of war-ready muscle glazed with sun-tempered skin. As he drops from the sky, the gold and sapphire trimming of his long loincloth flash as the lightning does when it crawls across the clouds. The speed of his descent and the force of his sword piercing the surface of the water caused a splash to erupt high around him, high enough to make the clouds move. Michael extended his winged arms outwards and with a swing of his sword sent the splash storming over the earth with explosive velocity. Noah, now standing on a beach, his breathing deep and his gaze deeper, his eyes locked somewhere between tranquility and horror as he watched the stampeding wave push light from the sky and then crash over him. Noah awakened to a bucket of water being thrown in his face. He didn't get to enjoy the relief that he wasn't going to be crushed by a massive fast-moving body of water. He had to resume the ugly reality that he was reawakened to, like not being able to move due to being strapped to a chair. Did I say you could pass out? Barked Vol Kamul, who then brutally struck Noah across the face with a wet bucket. Noah wasn't exactly elderly for being 600 years elderly. Not at all over the hill, but past his prime with a retained ruggedness. A ruggedness shown as he endured with a gray beard stained by his blood. Compliments of Volkabul. Noah's wavy longish salt and pepper hair was saturated with the water thrown on him mixed with his sweat, which also soaked his almond-shaded and bruise-laden skin. His eyes made one think of an owl as they implied wisdom at first glance, but a longer look also showed eyes leonine, even as they stung with his salt and made weary from interrogation. His experiences have conditioned his mind and his body. He's been many things during his long pre-Diluvian life, from a distinguished career as a soldier, a scientist, to a worker of the soil. Now, at this point, Noah had the occupation of keeping a highly coveted secret, a secret that even he didn't know the full details of, but Volkamul was determined to make an extraction. Volkamul was of a breed that came about from humans offering their bodies to fallen angels for possession. These were humans hoping they could become a vehicle for the demon's power at will, or in short, become a warlock. And although a warlock was born, the human desiring the power in the first place ends up being left out of the equation completely. Volkmul had hell in his eyes. He was long bearded with a face of young wild revolutionist leather. His wiry serpentine build fit the venom of his disposition. The hood of his dark red robe that he pulled over his head was like the crown of his cobra-like qualities. He was the able enforcer and ruthless subcommandant of Voldemort's regime. And he had Noah tied to a chair. Noah tried to focus while several other uniformed warlocks frantically performed other tasks in the bunker, loading supplies and studying data from the satellite feeds. 45 minutes, sir, reported a warlock observing his monitor. Shut up, Volkmul said with a crossly reflex, as he didn't want to miss a moment of Noah's breaking.
but then registered the report. Did you hear that, Noah? I think so, Noah answered with a sort of jolly drunkenness. He just said we have 45 minutes, reiterates Volkamul. I thought he said 45 minutes, plays Noah. Volkamul is not convinced that Noah has appreciated the gravity of the situation and grew angrier that Noah wasn't giving him the respect he felt owed. Comet fragments will slam into the earth in 45 minutes, Volkamul reasserts. I got that, Noah responds. And lucky me, Volkamul sneered. And lucky you, Noah agreed, mocking Volkamul's sarcasm. I get to spend these last minutes torturing the one man who could tell me where the new earth is. But no, <laughs> no, Noah then echoed. We're not good enough for new earth and you'll sacrifice yourself and everyone in it to keep us from it. Ain't that right, Noah? Well, there's that and the fact that you're going to kill me and leave the rest here to die anyway, said Noah. Guess I can't fool you, old man. And I'm pretty tired of fooling around as it is. Good, Noah agreed. I'm pretty tired too. So why don't you just let me go back to my mission and you can go back to hell. I'll remind you of where we are, said Volkamul, as he placed his hand on top of Noah's head and flooded his body with waves of agony. Noah gnashed his teeth and shut his eyes as tight as an angry fist. I'm a hell child with a talent to make your last minute seem endless, Noah. Noah's eyelids started to flutter as his eyes began to roll back and blood trickled from his nose. Volkamul rode Noah's pain receptors until Noah almost passed out again. Volkamul ceased the infliction and stepped back with the confidence that Noah was ready to talk. Now, before I turn your brain into snot, why don't you tell me where the new earth is? Noah's speech was more labored now, yet more defiant. No. Noah's answer left a bruise on Volkamul's ego. No? He asked Noah. That's right. No, I won't be a part of bringing your influence to new earth, said Noah with grit. Volkamul responded defensively yet facetiously. You make it sound as if we corrupted humanity on our own. They had a choice and choosing self-destruction was the only thing they did well for themselves. Other than that, they just wanted someone else to clean up the messes they'd make and complain about. As if you would praise humans for personal responsibility, said Noah, calling Bull Kamul out on his contradicting gripe with humanity. Noah knew that cynical personalities like Bull Kamul's would look for any reason to be critical. You gave the people enough to stay devoted to you while stifling what would make them independent from you. They looked away from God and foolishly looked to you. Upon hearing this, Volkamul unhooked the cylindrical handle from his belt. Oh, do go on, Noah, he said as if to seduce Noah into rising Volkamul's anger. Aside from human suffering, you warlocks wanted the wealth you gained from taxation. You taxed the people until they turned on each other when they should have turned on you. A telescopic blade quickly extended from the handle Volkamul held. Noah's not afraid. He was happy to remind Volkamul that he had seen through their smoke screen. You impressed the false premise of tolerance until people could hardly tolerate each other. 
You brainwashed them into accepting behavior that was unacceptable. You're more than wolves in sheep's clothing. You're fallen angels with the unholy accuser, Satan. You're reborn in flesh and now a political force whose policies and social engineering led humanity to ruin to spite God. Volkamul's blade flashed and became white hot. I'd rather you save your breath for more howls of pain. Noah didn't give an inch toward Volkamul's threat and said, if I can't see humanity to new earth, I'll at least know that you'll be dying with me. Enraged, Volkamul shouted, you'll be dead before you see the end of me, Noah. I can still watch you all die with your little secret from orbit. Unimpressed, Noah asked, and where will you go after that? Volkamul levitated Noah and the chair he was strapped to. He pointed the white hot cinder blade at Noah and manipulated Noah's angle to bring his face towards the blade. I will drag the tip of this blade across your eye, Noah. Noah's vision began to blur from lacrimation and he could smell the singeing of his eyelashes. With a roar of frustration, Volkamul raised his cinder blade shouting, tell me. The door to the chamber blasted open. Noah's chair dropped to the floor. Volkamul dive rolled over Noah with a kick of propulsion from the blast. The warlocks drew their guns and took positions as the Nephilim stormed the bunker. Warlocks telekinetically dragged Noah behind the barricade. Volkamul raced up the black metal mesh plates that made up the structure of stairs and rafters to have a vantage point to shoot down at the Nephilim. The team of Nephilim was led by Colonel Malachi. Malachi saw Volkamul and took off after him with panther-like prowess. He barely broke a sweat to shine his shaved head by the time he reached the top. Volkamul had reached his position where he was set to fire on the Nephilim below. Malachi was already in the air to fly tackle Volkamul, who turned the gun on Malachi and fired off rounds but missed. Malachi slammed into him like a truck. They hit the floor, fighting with grudge-lit fury. Volkamul still had the gun in his grip and discharging rounds. Malachi was able to eject the gun from the fight then held Volkamul down while his fist repeatedly descended on him like a coin striker. Volkamul parried one of the punches and shot a high-powered palm strike to Malachi's chest that launched him up to the ceiling. Volkamul scrambled to his feet as Malachi came crashing down. Upon landing, Volkamul started putting the boots to Malachi, landing stomps wherever he saw an opening, face, flanks, and chest. Even with Malachi's protective vest, the warlock's kicks hit with the blunt force impact of a well-swung sledgehammer. Malachi even felt the friction of the rubber sole of Volkamul's boots rip at his dark beard as Volkamul landed stomps to his face. Malachi then whipped his legs around, sweeping Volkamul off of his feet, and flowing with that motion stood upright and ready. Volkamul drew his cinder blade and ignited it after scrambling to his feet, and Malachi drew and ignited his. Malachi's eyes contrasted hard against his dark brown skin, and as soon as Volkamul's eyes locked with him, they locked swords. On the lower level, the combat had come to close quarters and the gunfight had become hand-to-hand -hand and blade-to-blade. -blade. Warrant Officer Apion, Malachi's closest compatriot, stripped his warlock adversaries of their weapons as they attacked him and struck them down with their own cinder blades. His movements were as smooth as he looked. He was handsome. To women, he was the right kind of beautiful. His movements reflected his appearance in that they were seductive. It was almost as if the commitment of his attackers were nothing more than moths throwing themselves at fire. 
his movements enticed with the illusion of an opening. And with such an attractive opportunity, his adversaries were drawn to him like the heathens in Sodom would be drawn to the angels that would have them decimated. Atheon's skill almost made it look as if his attackers were handing over their own blades and by their own blade, hand over their lives. He's the loyal, loose cannon hotshot. He thought of himself as a lover, not a fighter, but still wrestled to not enjoy how good he was at dispatching those who were at war against God. Careful to enjoy serving God and not to enjoy selfish glory. That was a little easier for Atheon to keep in check than his appetite for women. For Atheon was wired for weapons and women. Women cozied up to him as if they just wanted to rest upon the velvet of dark sepia and find favor in the hazels. His military groom allowed just enough wave in his bronze-shaded hair for them to wade in while floating on his charm. The women were happy to be with him on the dance floor, but in this bunker, he was giving last dances to his enemies on the killing floor. Warrant Officer Jaciot fought evasively, causing his opponents to strike each other down. The way he was in a fight was the opposite of his personality. He was the trusted confidant and default conscious, so to speak, of Malachi's squadron. When anyone knocked, he was there with godly wisdom and a good laugh. His compatriots endearingly called him the medicine man, but he was more like the shadow of death to his enemies. His attackers pursued him as if they were lost in the desert and he was a mirage. Where they thought they would find him, they would only find out too late that he had led them into the strike of their cohort. Jaciot and Atheon earned their wings together. They've flown as well as ran into several battles under Malachi's command in the past thousand plus years. They are Nephilim, half-human angels, offspring of the angelic sons of God who married human women, giving birth to those who became the heroes of old and great renown. Though the Nephilim were as old as Noah, they didn't reflect it. Their face and physique was youthful and strong, but at the same time a fatherly kind of strong. This was exceptionally so in Jaciot. Maybe it was the traces of gray in his dark goatee, on his skin like smoothly sanded mahogany. Maybe it was the length of his lashes emitting from lids of tawny eyes that invited people to trust him. Perhaps that made people comfortable around him, yet at the same time slightly concerned of whether or not they met his approval. Despite such leadership qualities, Jaciot kept his distance from it. He knew that his compatriots respected him as a leader. But what mattered to him was that it made the rest of the Nephilim under Malachi's command even more diligent in their charge under him. When someone of Jaciot's caliber ardently abided to Malachi's authority, Jaciot didn't take his compatriots' perception of himself for granted and knew this in part made their squadron better. Warrant Officer Kynan was the muscle of the squadron, demonstrated by him punching, kicking, and body slamming his opponents more than using his weapons. He broke whatever extremity his opponents threw at him. When an opponent threw a punch, they'd get a broken arm back. If they were lucky, it was one break instead of multiple breaks, plus dislocations, hyperextensions, or the opponent's extremity just ripped out from the socket and beaten with it. Warren Officer Kynan liked being the strong man. He liked developing his muscles. Though he had telekinetic abilities as well as superhuman strength and speed as all Nephilim did, he really liked exploring the human aspect of his strength 
as well as the angelic aspect of his strength. It wasn't that he was partial to feeding his fleshly human side. He knew that being human was the weakest aspect. Yet at the same time, he knew that God created man in his image. And Kynan wanted his human side to be as strong as it could be, for the image of God should reflect strength. Kynan had the characteristics of a bull, dark, muscular, and a one-man stampede against his adversaries. The chisel of his face was complemented by a beard only on the chin area. All of the Nephilim had tattoos signifying their heritage as descendants of angels. Their tattoos were not done with ink, but with a tapestry of small abalone tiles mounted on biofriendly metal and grafted on the skin. The work was very fine segments and almost a seamless tapestry of tiles that allowed flexibility to the image made of mother of pearl. Kynan had such artwork tracing up to his neck and along the right side of his shaved head. Although Kynan didn't agree with how extreme the modifications had become and knew that many did it as a means to focus on their flesh rather than God, he saw beauty in more of the moderate tattooing and the abalone grafting. Malachi's younger brother, Gunnery Sergeant Eris, was still young and eager. He was far younger than Malachi and the baby brother of all their siblings. Between Malachi and Eris, there were four sisters, one of which was killed by Volkamul, who had become obsessed with her. He was acquitted of the charges, saying it was self-defense, fabrications and planted evidence that made her out to be an agent on an assassination attempt, which was plausible considering she was a special operations agent. They characterized her as going rogue and that she planned to seduce Volkamul, getting close enough to assassinate him. The truth was is that she was abducted and Volkamul attempted to trespass upon his captive and murdered her in fury for her rejection. Eris as well as Malachi have had to resist the temptation of vengeance, which would of course be a motive in a murder case. Even if in the event of squaring off in battle, they knew that if faced off with their sister's murderer, they would have to put the sword to him for being an enemy of God, not for their own bloodlusting wrath. Eris and Malachi's sisters were among the residents and guardians of the city that would become romanced over as Atlantis. It is a city that will come to bear many names and different ideas of what it is and where it is. But at this time, it is the city of the Nephilim. The Nephilim dwelled among the humans, but didn't reside with them. They set themselves apart from the humans in their underwater city, safely off the grid. The city itself was situated within a large cavern under an island and was blessed to be built safe despite the global catastrophe that came. Many of the Nephilim were remaining there despite the coming flood. As the scriptures would record, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they became the heroes of old, men of renown. Genesis 6-4 the other Nephilim were commissioned to guard Noah on his assignment. Eris definitely wanted to be on the team with his brother. Malachi was still pretty protective of Eris. Atheon and Kynan were still busting his chops for being his younger brother. And of course, Jaciot was the one who assured him to not sweat it. After all those years, it just didn't seem to go out of style. Eris didn't have that fatherly hero of old look about him yet. He was exceptionally fast and agile and a live wire with the cinder blade. He definitely fought like a little brother seeking his older brother's approval and like he wanted to show that he could hang with his older brother's friends. 
Maybe he would have done himself a favor by growing in his facial hair to make himself look more matured and reduce some of the jabs that he got for being so much younger. But he liked being babyface smooth while wearing his dark, dense, curly hair as scruffy as regulation would allow. The team pressed their way towards Noah. Eris took a warlock down, but was oblivious to another one behind him. Atheon saw the situation and managed to decapitate one of his own attackers and then executed a spinning heel kick, kicking the head across the bunker which hit the warlock behind Eris. Eris heard the reaction of the warlock that was hit with the flying head, then turned and struck him down. Atheon shouted to Eris, I won't tell Malachi I had to save his little brother again. Eris continued to fight, frustrated and even more determined to prove that he could hold his own. He also had the conflict of holding Atheon in high regard while being jealous of the trusted right-hand status that Atheon had with Malachi. Up in the rafters, Volkamul was able to pin Malachi's blade down and then received the transmission via headset from the Commandant, Voldemisit. Let them go, he ordered in a rough, airy tenor. What? Volkamul asked in protest. Malachi took advantage of the distraction and socked Volkamul in the jaw with a left cross. Volkamul buckled, blowing into a spinning heel kick that uprooted Malachi in a twist. Before Malachi could hit the ground, Volkmul moved right into a telekinetic push that launched Malachi across the bunker. On the lower level, Atheon was sending Malachi a transmission. Okay, boss, we've pulled Noah from the snake pit. What's your 20? As Malachi was sailing behind them, crashing into a stack of storage cases. Back up in the rafters, Volkmul complained indignantly. You got me punched in the face. Why do I have to let them go? Because they can't afford to keep secrets anymore, Voldemisit answered. Now follow them. Volkamul begrudgingly complied, contacting the others via headset. Warlocks, fall back. They disengaged the Nephilim, allowing them to exit. Noah leaned on Malachi and Eris as they hustled him out. Volkamul addressed Malachi from the rafters. I didn't want to kill you just yet anyway, half-breed. You're going to suffer first, and I'm going to hit you where it hurts the most. Malachi saw that Volkamul was referring to his younger brother, Eris. You better hope that I don't get a hold of that little lamb because I like my meat screaming when I bite into it. Volkamul let them clear out and then addressed all the warlocks. Get to your ships. Malachi's team ran from the bunker into stormy weather where other Nephilim awaited them with hovering utility vehicles. They got Noah into an HUV or hover and applied first aid as Malachi stepped away to make a quick call. Hey Jojo, I need a V-Hawk toad. After giving the details, Malachi joined the rest of them in one of the hovers, and they sped off across the soaking hills. Elsewhere, inside the husk of what used to be an office building, a man stood nervously as it stormed outside. He had the posture of a man afraid to get caught making a shady business deal and a soaked alley cat. The fallen angel, Mullacron, was with him. His form was only made evident by the dark robe and hood he was wearing. If you wish to escape the world's end... I suggest you hurry while there's still time to catch them, Mullacron coaxes. And I'll be the host of your power? The man asked cautiously. Sweet deal, right? Mullacron asked. Yeah, maybe too sweet, the man said. I'm your only chance, human. The man holds fast and says, looks like I could say the same to you. Sure, says Mullacron. You could. But can you say that you know you can survive the disaster to come on your own? Okay, the man said. I'll do it. 
I'll do it. Make me the host of your power. Yes, hissed Molochron, who moved as vapor from his robe and permeated the man. The man who has committed the blasphemy of relinquishing his body to the will of a fallen angel. The man who trusted a demon's lie to give him everlasting life in the flesh rather than obeying God as Noah did. The man's eyes turned black. His vessels bulged and darkened against his gray-stricken skin. He convulsed violently and then became still. Molochron had taken over. The man was deceived into believing he would be able to control the fallen angel's power in exchange for letting Molochron have safe haven within his body. He was very wrong. Molochron took advantage of the man's desperation. Usually, the desperations were for power over others. But this man was hoping for the power to survive the waters when they rose over the earth. Whatever the case, demons used a human's desire to gain entrance. Upon entry, the host died as the demon took over the body completely. Fallen angels lusted over living through humans. But humans typically didn't survive long with the encounter. Fallen angels preferred being invited in, as opposed to an intrusive possession. They didn't want to fight with the will of an unwelcoming human. They just wanted to enjoy the experience unchallenged. Sometimes they would take a body by force, keeping their consciousness hostage in their own body. And of course, the stronger the will of the person, the longer they could possess the body, sometimes for several years. Of course, it also means the demon or even demons had to wrestle with the body's true consciousness fighting back. The demons did it every once in a while, but it was a gamble and a trade of one complication for another. But the fallen angels did it because as much as they hate humans, they'd rather live through them than to exist without experiencing at least some corporal gratification. Before they were fallen angels, they experienced something greater something pure that they took for granted. Now, they had to settle for being dependent on human sensations. But these demons could find humans who would invite them to possess them. These humans died shortly after because they were weak-willed to begin with. But the demon could still have a chance to use the body long enough to find a female to violate in hopes of a conception. It had to be done this way because the demon had to have full control to have the best chance to accomplish this task so as to not be in conflict with the body's original consciousness fighting back. Upon conception with the female, he would transfer himself to the zygote to be born moments later as a warlock, a demon incarnate and virtually immortal or just much more resilient than humans. Molochron was just one of many fallen angels trying to be reborn as a warlock as the end was drawing near. If all the humans were killed, they wouldn't be able to use them to experience their sensations. It's almost as if a fallen angel who separated himself from God is like a human that survived having his skin burned off and the human has to be salved and wrapped for some sense of relief. Humans were that salve and rap for demons that burned with hatred and from the light of God. It would come to be revealed in future scripture that 
when an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert seeking rest, but finding none. A person would indeed get scorched, lost in the desert. Angels have sensations, but fallen angels in their sin were tormented by the light of God and truth in the spirit realm. Their pride made them allergic to truth. Thus, the thing they felt the most was the discomfort that distracted them from anything else they could feel. Taking refuge in human hosts gave them some relief from that. But this is what these hateful, rebellious angels chose. And likewise, there are many people who would rather wallow in their misery, their addictions, their grudges, their pain, their hate, and their self-righteousness than to forgive and live in joy. They would rather plunge into a self-destructive cycle than break it and be free from it. Demons would rather suffer being apart from God and hate him and his creation of humanity than to serve him and be at peace with humanity. Mullacron got his chance to claim a body before the flood took over. He made a false peace with a human. He then had to find a female and he had just the one in mind. The hovers are speeding through the storm. They were on approach to a vast field of small military skycraft and one large combat shuttle. The hovers docked on the shuttle. Noah's wife, Aneth, and their three adult sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, helped Noah out of the vehicle. Get him situated on the flight deck, Malachi tells them. The last time Aneth saw Noah like this was the first time she met him. She was a combat doctor and Noah was brought into her triage as a class 3 patient. He was a bloody mess then, yet he was oozing just as much charm as blood. It turned on when he got a look at her, taken by features like her long, elegant neck and her hair like ribbons of dark waves that escaped from her ponytail during the course of her work. The softness of her eyes was healing Noah before she even finished her first glance assessment. The tone of her skin was warm and rich like autumn, and he waited for her hands to descend on him like the earth receives the leaves in the fall. I feel like this is the Lord's way of telling me that I done good. Noah labored to tell Aneth. Aneth orders an IV drip and transfusion. Don't you think I got enough holes in me, Doc? Aneth smirked and said, Don't you think I get enough bloody hunks on my table feeding me a line? <laughs> you got me there, Noah said. Don't get me wrong, I think it's very cute, Aneth assured. Wait, Noah said. Is it cute when... Other bloody hunks give you a line, or is it cute when this bloody hunk does it? Aneth locks a droop-headed look upon Noah and said, I have debris to dig out of you. Noah smiled in agreement then asked, So, um, do I have to get shot out of the sky to see you again? More than 500 years passed since that war. Noah wasn't as physically damaged as he was when he and Aneth first met, but his soul was. He was in no mood to be charming, even in the presence of his wife, who had aged as gracefully as wine, or be solid in the presence of his sons. Aneth told Malachi that she needed to get Noah to sickbay. The flight deck is going to have to be sickbay right now, Malachi said. Tend to him there. Before Aneth could protest, Noah assured that it was okay, and to get him to the flight deck. Eris was not pleased to find his Viper Hawk secured aboard the Eagle Horse shuttle. 
Why is my V-Hawk aboard the shuttle? Eris demanded. All right, little brother, I know you're not going to like this, but you're riding out with me. You're right, Eris agreed. I don't like it. Well, let that be a lesson to you. I'm always right. See, Eris erupted. There you go treating me like a little kid again. What the hell do I have to do to earn your respect as a warrior? Malachi put the brakes on his younger brother. Eris, you can either swallow a shockwave of flash-boiled water, or you can swallow your pride. Warriors, earn my trust. Trust is earned by following my orders. Eris bit down on his temper. Yes, sir. He begrudgingly complied and headed to the cabin of the eagle horse. Malachi struggled to shake off the notion that he was being overprotective and that he let Volkmul's threat get under his skin. He made for the flight deck and strapped in next to Noah. Man, I must really like you, Malachi said. Then Noah spoke from guilt. I'm leaving everyone on earth to die. I don't deserve to be on this shuttle. Oh, come on, Noah, Malachi encourages. Nobody deserves to be on this shuttle more than you. Especially since you're the only one who knows where we need to go. I feel so many people, Noah lamented. Look, Malachi said, I know you're overwhelmed, but you need to remember humanity made their choice. They failed. You didn't. I know you want to save them, but that isn't your mission. A comet fragment struck in the convoy's proximity. The rest of the Nephilim were in their respective skycraft and received a transmission from Malachi. Let's take off! Where are we going? asked Kynan. Just stay on me, Malachi responded. The Eagle Horse, amidst hundreds of F.I. Viper Hawks and F.B. Cobra Hawks, charged their electromagnetic repulsors and lifted away from the ground. The convoy reached the ideal altitude, heated their afterburners, aimed their vehicles skywards, and accelerated to escape velocity. The sky before them was black, but revealed extremely muscular shadows every time the lightning flashed on the cumulonimbus. The hostility of the sky was amplified by the blazing comet fragments streaking by, and matters got even worse. FB Vulture Wolves, the two-seater military skycraft piloted by the Warlocks, were closing in. Malachi, we got company, Avion warned. Caught between fallen ice rocks and a hard place, added JCI. You guys want to play a little game? Malachi proposed. Man, there's nothing little about your games, except the safety margin, Atheon said. You say something, little girl? Malachi called back. All right, boss, what's the game? Kynan asked. The game is, who can fly into the dragon's mouth and make it out of his... Malachi's proposal was interrupted by a massive discharge of lightning's thunder. I think you all get the point, said Malachi. The convoy pressed on into the falling field of comet fragments. They must think we won't follow them in, said Volkmul. I wasn't thinking about following them in, another warlock said. Shut up, hollered Volkabool, whoever that was. On the surface, mass hysteria has broken out in the cities. Architectures burned by riot. People were taking the worst of themselves out on each other. Men bludgeoned each other to death and violated the women they could have been comforting. Amidst the chaos, a man knelt in the street to avoid giving way to delirium and attempted to pray. A tattered woman approached him. As she got closer, she picked up a piece of debris she saw fit for wielding. She stepped up to the trembling man whose eyes were shut. You would pray to a God that would allow this to happen, she asked. He opened his eyes and saw a woman who really wouldn't be pleased with any answer he could give. He shut his eyes one more time, and the tattered woman proceeded to lower the piece of debris upon him with the speed of hatred. But a comet fragment struck just behind her, leveling everyone and everything on the block. 
Heavy winds slammed the rain in the homes inhabited by people broken to the floor with fear. In one of those homes, Shailer sat solemnly with her two children, her adult daughter Bazneen and her son Simeon with his dog Mumps, a loyal brown semi-long-coated mutt. Simeon appeared to be about 10, but he was over 30 years old at the time. His sister Bazneen was more than 100 years old, but looked to be closer to 30. Their mother, Shailer, was one of the beautiful daughters of men chosen as a wife by one of the angelic sons of God. Bazneen and Simeon are Nephilim. While pre-Diluvian humans live closer to a thousand years, the Nephilim live far longer, and it takes them almost twice as long to grow into physical adulthood as humans. The three of them sat in front of the fire pit piled with heat rocks as their last scene of comfort on earth. Mups was not terribly afraid of the storm, but there was a strike of lightning that charged a fur on his back. The thunder was now accompanied by his growling. The next flash of lightning brought on the flash of his teeth, followed by aggravated barking. Simeon's attempts to console the dog were useless. Mups sensed the evil drawing close. The posture and aggravation in his barking crescendoed up to the front door being forced open and the rain-soaked intruder stepped in gazing profanely at Shailer. Your fear will enhance my ecstasy as I know you, Shailer. You may have lived as the wife of Damiel, but tonight you'll die as the pleaser of Molochron. Bazneen sprung towards the fire pit, reaching into the flames, grabbed the heat rock and threw it, impacting the host of Molochron right between the eyes. The intruder grasped his forehead, howling in more indignation than pain. This bought her enough time to telekinetically acquire a decorative knife that was on the shelf across the room. Just as the host of Molochron cleared his eyes of the initial strike, he was afflicted with another. He lunged forward, finding himself face to face with Bazneen. She stepped back and withdrew the blade from his abdomen, expecting him to keel over. She stood in disappointment and frustration as the intruder's humanless eyes blazed on her. Molochron rushed Bazneen and she evaded his advance, leaving a cut on him for every move he made. Her hair was long waves of the Euphrates in evening, a veil that revealed the blood of the intruder as she eluded his assaults while swiftly and repeatedly dragging the knife across his flesh. She was a born warrior. Her skill was as natural as her beauty, but she wasn't as confident with her abilities. Not so much because of her performance, but because she wasn't seeing the point. She had powers to be a protector, but she didn't understand why she needed to protect an increasingly wicked people that were destroying themselves. Bazneen's body was as elegant as her blade and the manner in which she wielded it. Her eyes were shaped and dressed with the most alluring elements. Doe-shaped, with long eyelashes that flashed fire opals now dilated with adrenaline. Her mouth was like a picture of autumn with red leaves and snow because of her full lips and her bright teeth clenched with concentration. Her skin glistened like dark honey as she perspired. In the exchange, Bazneen bypassed a swing of the intruder's left arm and sunk the blade into his back at the left lower lung. He's got to drop now, she expected. The possessed body could sustain more traumatic afflictions that would be lethal to humans. The demon possessing the body could keep the body active like a puppet, even though the body had been mortally wounded. The body was still of some use to the demon, but the demons couldn't keep the body from death's decay. 
The body was not usable by the demon when it started to decompose. The intruder cleared the look of pain from his face. Basneen was not ready to accept that she couldn't kill him. She knew they were doomed anyway, but if they had to die, her focus was to make sure they died in the extinction level event. Not by Molochron's will. She wouldn't allow him the satisfaction. She lunged her blade towards him. The intruder intercepted her arm, quickly manipulating her into a shoulder lock. He cranked her arm and took the blade from her. Shailer and Simea moved to help Basneen, but Muff ferociously launched ahead of them. Molochron drew the blade back to thrust it into Basneen's torso while holding her in submission. But the stabbing that was meant for Basneen fell upon Mups as the intruder threw the knife and killed the loyal dog. Simeon wailed out in horror. He left his mother's hold and charged Molochron. The intruder was humored by this and tossed Basneen behind him. Not seeing Basneen get swallowed by the air before she hit the ground due to his preoccupation with Simeon. Simeon attacked him cathartically, yet with great skill. The intruder could hardly keep up with the childlike hybrid. He was deceptively fast and strong, abilities masked by his youthful, wiry build, mussy waves of hair, and angelic face. Fitting since he and Basneen were fathered by an angel. The host of Molochron eventually caught an opening and was able to grab Simeon by the throat and lifted him up as high as he could extend his arm. You're not man enough to stop me. Then the intruder froze when he heard a voice behind him say, Yet still more man than you. The intruder dropped Simeon as he turned to attack the challenger behind him. Simeon was also swallowed by the air before hitting the ground. When Molochron turned to attack the challenger, he was slashed across the chest with a flaming sword swung by Damiel. The burning wound on the howling intruder's chest spread flames over the rest of his body and blew him away. Damiel walked toward Shailair through the scattering embers of the intruder's remains. Shailair was kneeling in shock, and Damiel reached his winged arms towards her. Shailair, Shailair, the children are safe. He pulled back his hood. Our children are safe. Shailair raised her eyes to her husband and climbed into his embrace. It may be your time, he told her, but I couldn't let you die like this. Shailair pulled back to see his face. I love you, she said with welling eyes. You ready for eternity? He asked. Shailair tells him she's ready. Damiel's winged arms glowed intensely as he folded them around his wife. They illuminated blazingly, and the two spirits disappeared with a rapid ascension. The Nephilim and the pursuing warlocks sped their vehicles through a hail of comet fragments and throes of lightning. Some of them collided with the fragments despite death maneuvering. But when the clouds cleared, there was a revelation of a larger comet fragment. However, the violently burning fragments changed to serene orbs of light, which shot past them with a melodic hum. When a Nephilim's vehicle collided with a glowing orb, an angel pulled the pilot from the flash upon impact, and they disappeared. But when a warlock's vehicle collided with an orb, the flash was an angel striking the pilot with a flaming sword. The largest comet fragment changed into an intricate city-like structure all made of crystal. The structure glowed and hummed to a deafening and blinding intensity. Noah then found himself standing amidst angelic soldiers. 
They were surrounded by white pillars and walls that seemed to be speeding by like noonlit clouds driven by summer winds. The angel, Gabriel, addressed Noah from the platform before him. Be free of despair, my friend, and know your favor within the Almighty. How can I be found favorable when... Gabriel interrupted Noah's self-pity. Not since Enoch has God favored a human such as you. If I tell you that you're favored, accept it. Yes, my lord. Thank you, Noah conceded. Gabriel then continued. A word of warning, Noah. In 30 years, the warlocks can amass great power in this galaxy alone. Should that time come, your supposed secret will not be as important to them as killing you. No matter how much power they gain, they won't forget their grudge with you. Understood, my lord. I want to tell you, Noah, I admire your compassion as well as your obedience, but humans were following their desires to their doom. Don't punish yourself for what happened to them. Yes, my lord. Now, favored man of God, return to your mission. Gabriel and the other angels fade in a flood of intense light. Noah was back on the flight deck, resumed on a collision course with a large comet fragment. The fragment was too close and too large to maneuver around, and the blaze looked like a rendition of hell falling from the sky. Malachi, knowing that he had served faithfully, took a deep breath to make ready for terminal impact. Yet as he exhaled, the fragment fractured, separating into two main pieces. The pieces part ways as Malachi pilots his shuttle through the violent separation with the team of Viper Hawks and Cobra Hawks streaking behind them through the massive falling boulders of fire and ice. When they passed through, they found themselves close to the outer perimeter of the trailing comet fragment field. However, the Nephilim were not successful in breaking the Warlock's pursuit. Looks like they're planning to follow us all the way there, Malachi said, and I am already tired of running. Noah opened up his portable computer and started typing frantically. Engaging them might not be necessary. You got a better idea than shooting them? griped Malachi. Noah issued a somewhat relieving response saying, Not a better idea. A bigger one. He hit the sin command. The afterburners of their vehicles looked as small as the distant stars in contrast to the massive spaceship that appeared from cloaking right before them all. Voldemiset then sent a transmission. Break off the pursuit. Warlocks piloted their vulture wolves away from the gigantic ship. Atheon heckled their departure. Hey, where are you guys going? Don't be jealous. The warlocks go to approach another ship orbiting the Earth. They piloted their vulture wolves into the ship's hangars. Subcommandant Volkmul with his cohorts Volteg and Volbashag entered the bridge. Volteg and Volbashag were a motley duo of ruffians. Twins, actually. They were militants more than military, obnoxious thugs with officers' insignia. Volkamul was the first to huff out his gripes. So, is that supposed to be New Earth? A ship? When Volbashag and Volteg spoke, it was often in unison making an ominous chorus. Deep voices from thick-neck hooligans. Their wild eyes were accented by their grayish-blue pupils that looked ghostly with their light brown skin. We all shouldn't be so surprised. I don't recall being sent on any missions to Earth-like planets when I was an angel. But we all might have been passed over for cushy jobs like that. God's suck-up angels might have gotten those gigs. Volbashag and Volteg usually said I instead of we. 
because although they were twins, they weren't two distinct entities of consciousness. They were one fallen angel in two human bodies. They could see through each other's eyes, hear through each other's ears, etc. The demon consciousness could detect when one of the bodies experienced pain or pleasure, but the other body did not feel what the other body felt, but was only aware of it. It's kind of like the left arm being cut while the right arm doesn't experience the pain, but the whole body is still involved in the affliction. The demon consciousness basically commanded the bodies like a left and right arm. They could operate independently, like a drummer performing rudiments, but it's still one mind operating the independent movements. Voldemort still had his back to them, the hood of his dark red robe still covering his head. He stared out of the portal, watching the effects of the comet fragments strike the Earth. If New Earth is a ship, then they can have it, he said. A mobile home is just not my style. Commandant Voldemort turned to face them. The face that not only had seduced his nation, but channeled the discontent of the world who would seat him as the premier of a one-world government. He was charismatic and like a master self-serving politician. He exacerbated the problems of society. Too many in society didn't even suspect him of institutionalizing their misery. Instead, they gave him more power. Some trusted him because they believed he would cater to what they felt entitled to and do away with classes so that all would be supposedly equal. Nobody could be allowed to be wealthier than the other, and this would somehow do away with poverty, a government-designed utopia, even though this utopian idea was a tool used to destroy humanity. Many others fawned over him because it was fashionable. If you weren't enamored with Voldemort, then you were simply archaic, bigoted, unsophisticated, unenlightened, and opposed progress. Voldemort was well manicured, no facial hair with a well-groomed do, cut close. He wasn't incredibly handsome, but handsome enough. He was politically handsome. He was the kind of handsome that people could relate to. His body was long and indicative of his far-reaching world government. His dark and well-shaped brows were complemented by the light brown shade of his skin. His rise to power was fueled by the warning of a few. The more the few tried to warn the others of his oppressive agenda, the more the others would respond with denial and defensiveness and empower Voldemort all the more. Because of their selfishness, all they cared about was what they believed he would do for them and did not care that it would be at a high cost to others and even felt that it should come at the high cost of others. That is what he represented and they adored him for it. Voldemort considered what the twins said about the prospects of Earth-like planets. There's still other planets out there that could potentially support life, he said. Yeah, but not our life, snaps Volkamul. Such pessimism, said Voldemort. Okay, fine, continues Volkamul. Let's go to another planet and make ourselves at home for a few seconds while the alien atmosphere makes us implode or explode, poison us or both, and that's just for starters. That point's a given, the twins said. We can't just making ourselves at home wherever we want is exactly what we're going to do, interrupted Voldemort. All right, said Volkamul. Let's go make ourselves at home on Jupiter. That'd be easy. I said any planet we want, Kamul. 
why would we want to live on a turbulent high gravity gas ball? I think we can do a little bit better than Jupiter. One of these days you'll see how stupid you look when you try to be condescending towards me. Boldemiset then addressed the helmsman. You have the coordinates, helmsman. Go ahead and scroll. Their ship advanced towards an event that looked like space was rolling up like a scroll. The ship emitted a gravity cocoon around itself as it entered and shot through the space-time compression.